This morning we continue in our series in the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of James. We're in chapter one still, looking at verses nine through 12. And uh, as we begin, I wanna just share a story with you. Most of you know that my family and I lived in Sweden for a little bit a few years ago. And uh, we were missionaries there and our purpose was to, to help with a church plant. We were told as we were approaching Sweden uh, by our teammates and other Christians that we had met in Sweden that, that Swedes in general are very quiet. They're, they usually are the type of people that would stay to themselves and, and, and they wouldn't naturally go out and, and meet new people. And so that, that's what we thought was common. That's what we thought would happen. And so uh, we lived with our teammates for a little bit until we had a rental house that was available. And so we, we go the first day to get the keys of our rental home and we're shocked by Swedes coming out of their home to greet us. I thought maybe my wife looked strange to them or something. It was probably me. Handshakes, hugs. One neighbor was rubbing my wife's belly because she was pregnant with Charlotte. Odd things. Another neighbor across the way, his name was Tommy, a middle-aged man who had a skullet. You guys know what a skullet is? Bald on the top, long hair on the back. <clears throat> he drove his <clears throat> American Harley that sat in the front of his row house covered, and he would quote to me Maiden and Metallica lyrics all the time. The most outgoing Swede I've ever met. Everything America. And, and throughout the, the year that we were there, living across from them, we had a lot of discussions. He was, he was quite shocked to find out that an American would move to Sweden in the first place, and secondly, to move there for the purpose that we did, to help build a church. I had a chance to meet with him a few other times, and, and one evening he began to ask questions, really introspective questions. He, he wanted to know if it was okay that he slept with his girlfriend. He wanted to know if, it, if he would be a good person in God's eyes because he helped people. He, he wanted to convey to me that he really wasn't that bad of a guy, um, and that he thought God must like him because he was doing very well. Financially, lots of friends, he said he, he liked to make money. He liked to have toys. In fact, he thought that, that, that God was helping him in this way by making him have this. And he, he would be generous with his time and his money. In fact, he came over our house a number of times to help with a plumbing issue. That's a whole other story. You can ask about me later. <laughs> but I, I say this because I, I think that there's many in our world that think the same way as Tommy. God must not have any real issue with me. And, and they feel to trust in God, to worship him, is like a, a crutch for their life. And, and if God is a crutch, that means, and if I need him, that means I must be crippled. And, and people, all of us, we really deep down don't want to see ourselves as cripples. It's, it's offensive to see ourselves as anything other than self-sufficient and strong. But Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, Mark 2. In other words, the only people who will ever come to get what Jesus has to give are sick people, people who know that they're spiritually and morally crippled. People who you share the gospel with only come to faith because God has shown them their insufficiency in themselves. 
And one of the ways that Jesus shows people throughout the gospels their, their insufficiency was using a, a paradox. Webster defines a paradox as a statement that is seemingly contrary uh, or opposed to common sense, and yet perhaps it's true. Last is first. Giving is receiving. Dying is living. Losing is finding. Least is greatest. Weakness is strength. Serving is ruling. Poor is rich. Rich is poor. G.K. Chesterton wants to find a paradox as truth standing on its head calling for attention. Can you picture that? All these truths, like people standing on their heads, calling out to others to consider what they're saying is true. Hey, hey, look at me. Uh, up is down. Down is up. And in the text this morning, poor is rich. Rich is poor. A paradox is a, a very powerful vehicle to communicate truth, and, and in this, biblical truth. And this is what James is doing for us this morning as we come to verses 9 through 12. And so I'm going to read uh, the context up to this point, starting at verse 1 in chapter 1, all the way through verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, and you're going to need your Bibles this morning, make sure you have it open. We're going to look at the scriptures this morning, James 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and it withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James continues in, uh, the discussion of the suffering, those in, in trials, and he has examples of those that suffer here, the, the rich poor and the poor rich. And so both will be seen in this trial. If you have, if you got notes, there, there's an outline there for you um, as we follow through here. But I want to begin by praying, and so you pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can gather together in freedom here in America to, to worship you without any fear of, of retribution. And God, we don't take that lightly. Remind us again of, of the, the freedom we have and, and the freedom now we have to sit under the, the preaching of your word. And I pray for your people that are seated here, God, that you would help them to understand what it says, uh, that they would um, receive your word, that your spirit would be the teacher and guide, and that I wouldn't stand in the way of that that people would come away changed and we'll give you all the honor and glory for what you do in this place. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So the first point, the rich poor, verse nine. When we get saved, when our lives are transformed by the gospel, by God's work in our lives, we have a, a new view of life. You've, you've then seen the depth of your need and you know that God has rescued you, that he 
that he pulls you out and you're, you're filled with, with awe of who God is and how unworthy you are. It's, it's like God opens up the curtains of the whole universe and you finally get it. And, and you understand what life is all about now. You finally understand what you're living for. You're, you're humbled by the grace of God. But because we live in a sin-cursed world, we tend not to stay there. Those, those things become familiar, normal, and then they become mundane. We can fall into a habit of coming to church, singing songs, giving and leaving with nothing different happening. Nothing change. Nothing in our life changes because we've, we've made our worship just another thing to check off the list in life. It doesn't become important as it once was. And so I ask, what is important to you in your life right now? What do you boast in? What do you take pride in? What is it in your life that you stand back with, with joy beaming and say this? This is important. This is what life is for. This is what drives me and sustains me. This. And so I ask, what is the this, friends? What is important to you? James asked this question this morning. Remember, James is writing this letter to a group of people who have been beat up. James' scattered Jewish church was being kicked around the Mediterranean like a soccer ball. And James isn't writing to believers who, who are skating by in life with no worries and no concerns. Everything's going great. No, these are persecuted brothers and sisters. And James, in his wise and pastoral way, reminds them of what is important when, when you're suffering in trouble. And he begins here in verse 9 with this first paradox. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Because we begin to think that when we're low, that we have nothing. James says the lowly brother, the Greek word here means a person in adversity or, or poverty. These are people of little significance in the world's viewpoint. It is also can be translated as, as one who's opposed by the world. And this fits for the book of James. And these lowly ones have lost so much. They have been dispersed. They've been scattered, James says. And because they're um, low economically in, in, in the world, they're, they're low in the eyes of the world, I'm sure, but most instances they're low in their, in their own eyes, in their own esteem. And their poverty produced a lowliness of mind. And in most societies, especially here in the West, to be poor is to be something of a failure at life. It's the thought that something went wrong along the way. Either your parents screwed up or society was against you or you just plain wrecked things. And people can begin to think that being poor is a reflection on them as a person. They begin to place their full worth as, as humans on their wealth or their social standing. And so the poor begin to, to strive for more in life, to, to dream for a better existence. They want something greater. And James gives them something greater to boast in. And remember, he's, he's not writing to the world. He's writing to the church. So it's a lowly brother. And, and they need to boast in something. Not in how much they lack, but he says a lowly brother boasts in his exaltation and how much they have as Christians. This is probably not what you thought you should take pride in. This is a paradox that James gives us. The, the rich poor. The world says they are nothing. They have nothing. And they can really do nothing. But God says otherwise, because God gives something that the world cannot give. The lowly brother is actually rich, he says. He's, he's rich in Christ. He says that he should boast in his position. 
So let's unpack those words. First, we're, we're to boast. Now, boasting may seem like something that we should never do as Christians. Boasting, defined in the dictionary, is, is to speak with excessive pride and self-satisfaction about one's achievements, possessions, or abilities. So if we're boasting in ourselves and how great we are, that's not healthy. But it's not what James says here, right? We are to boast in his exaltation, boast in the position that we are as Christian. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you've been exalted. You're not in a high position. And it's not because of you and how great you are. You didn't do anything to get there as a Christian. You're exalted because of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word here is even more just boasting. It's, it's a joyous boasting. Paul uses the same language in Romans 5, 2, speaking of rejoicing. He says, through him we have also attained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This joyous boasting is not in ourselves. It's not in what we can do, but in Christ, in Christ alone, what he did for us. And the lowly Christian is exalted now. They enjoy their present spiritual status because of a relationship to Jesus. So, so we're to boast. And, and second, what does James say we boast in? Well, I've said this already. We're to boast in Christ. What we have in Jesus. And, and you need to pause for a moment, Christian, and, and think. Think about this. Seriously, you've been, you've been going and moving all week, right? I know you've been doing stuff all week. And this is an opportunity where you're now going to sit and listen to someone speak to you, okay? So, so think through this. I, and I reminded about this this morning, and I put it in my notes. Every Christian needs to be reminded on a regular basis on who they are. You know why? Because we have spiritual amnesia. I mean, every morning you need to be reminded who you are, who you are in Jesus Christ. And a form of, of amnesia happens every week, every day. And so we need to me to remember who we are in Jesus. In, in Christ, the scriptures say we're justified, we're made right. In Christ, we're made righteous. In Christ, we are sanctified. In Christ, we're accepted. In Christ, we're forgiven. In Christ, we're made complete. And, and, and he's not done yet. There's more in scripture. In Christ, we are his bride. We are his inheritance. We are his possession. You are not some throwaway thing in Christ. He's saying you're exalted because of what Christ has done. And these are things only promised to those who are in Jesus Christ. And so Christian friends, you need to obey what the scripture says and you need to boast, not in who you are, but in who Christ is and what Christ has done. You need to remember the gospel. You need to remember who you once were. In fact, that's your homework today, okay? That's your homework. I don't give you very much homework. I'm gonna do it today. Whether around the table here this afternoon as a church family or after service or in the car this afternoon, I want you to rehearse with someone else who you once were. Going again over the gospel. Remember, do you guys remember who you once were? Does that not astound you? Am I the only one excited today? Come on, man. Think of who you were before Jesus Christ and boast in that. And remember how God saved you and remind one another to sit around the table and say, this is who I was and this is what Christ did. And it's not me, it's him. We need to do this, church, because if not, we become in the mundane of life and we forget what's important. We forget what we need to boast in. 
But I realize in an audience this size, there's someone here who is not in Christ. And maybe you've come, maybe this is your month to come to church or you come every whatever and you think you're good. And I plead with you this morning that if you're not in Jesus Christ, please know as we sang this morning, you're still under the wrath of God. We can sing that as believers because we're no longer under the wrath. But if you're not in Jesus Christ, you still are. Jesus Christ is the son of God eternal without beginning, forever existing with the Father from everlasting to everlasting. He was truly God. He is truly God. And yet he was made flesh. He came down from glory of heaven and became human. Why? Why, why would Jesus do this? Because without a human nature, he couldn't die. And this was his aim. This was his desire to come to earth was to die. He lived to die. Why? Why would the God of the universe send his son to come die? Because God's heart toward you and toward me is not only wrath flowing from his justice, but also mercy flowing from his love. And to satisfy both justice and love, God substituted his son to die in our place, in my place. And he took what we deserved on the cross. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to give his life as a ransom to rescue sinners from hell. And I'm not gonna get tired of preaching the gospel. And I hope you don't get tired. And the car ride here with just Charlotte today, because my wife's home, she's asking questions about Jesus. And I think this is an opportunity to preach the gospel. She's heard a lot, but I don't want to get tired of it. And we're not going to get tired of it here because this is the center of Christianity. This is the nucleus. This, God sent his own son to provide a substitute for all who would be saved from sin, a substitute life, a substitute death. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life of faith and obedience to the Father. And Jesus died a totally undeserved, horrific, and obedient death by crucifixion on the cross. And he did this for us, friends. And therefore, for all of us who are saved by him from the wrath of God, we're saved because our sin was laid on Jesus Christ and his righteousness is credited to us. And so when he says to us, we need to boast in him, we need to remember the gospel. Paul says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the center. This is the heart of Christianity. And this is the deepest need of every human being on earth. No money, no medicine, no good earthly life will ever touch them, will ever heal them. It's only through the gospel. And he says here to this believer that of humble circumstances, there's no poor in the economy of God. We're all made rich because of Jesus Christ. The poor are actually rich. So that's my first point. Second, he flips the coin. The, the poor rich, the rich are actually poor. <laughs> Look at verse 10. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. It, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. See, James flips the coin over to reveal that the other type of person that suffers in this life is those that are rich. One, uh, one that believes that their riches are, are something they should boast in. 
James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. He presents a riddle. James calls the poor man a brother, but the second man is simply one who is rich. Now, does James intend to distinguish between the poor believer whom God blesses and the rich unbeliever whom God judges? If the rich man is an unbeliever, then verses 10 and 11 are sarcastic in tone, declaring that the proud rich man can look forward to just one thing, his fading away, his, his judgment on the last day. But I believe this is unlikely uh, for two reasons. First, while James uses irony on the occasion in this book, in chapter 2, verse 19, he, he doesn't use harsh sarcasm. And second, the words translated here, pass away or fade away, never refer to final judgment of sinners elsewhere in the New Testament. More likely, I believe James is saying that the rich man is also a believer. Both the poor and rich are same in the eyes of God. Both need salvation. Both need to humble themselves. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. A.T. Robertson said, the cross of Christ lifts up the poor and brings down the high. It's the great leveler of men. And if this is true, we need to recognize that riches and poverty are both trials in this life. Both can distract people from understanding their need for Christ. We tend, though, in our world to, to think that the, the rich, the rich are the people that have so many privileges. But do you remember how Jesus talked about the rich in the Gospels? They're the underprivileged spiritually. This is the main point of the story of the rich young ruler we can read about in Luke 18. A rich young guy comes up to Jesus and asks what he, he, he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus knows all things, understands this man holds his riches very tightly. And, and after the man then lists off all of the spiritual resume that he's done, Jesus instructs him to sell all that he had. And what does he do? He leaves sorrowful. He leaves upset. Why? Luke says, he was extremely rich. And then Jesus makes this pronouncement. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't teach that, that it's wrong to be rich. He, he is teaching categorically that it's impossible for a man or a woman who trusts in their riches to get them into heaven. And if you believe that your riches are what you need to have a better life, you've believed a lie. And James says here that it'll all fade away. Like a flower of the grass will pass away. The rich literally reads the wealthy, those with abundance, lacking nothing physically. Just like the world tends to think of the poor as something of a failure at life, the world tends to think of wealthy as those who've made it and and, and are smart and can relax now because of their wealth. To be wealthy in this culture means you have won the game. You've succeeded at life. You've accomplished what life is all about. That's what the world says. But they're wrong. See, for the world, rich people are to be admired and envied. Their, their lives are splashed online or on television so that the rest of us can, can realize of all that we're missing out on. And we, as, as the consumer, like to view what it's like to be them. And we, we come away feeling like to be rich means you have no problems. You need to talk to more rich people. It's not true. I mean, people think, you're rich. What else could you want? And I've read 
more than one article in the last six months of famous athletes who, who reached the pinnacle of their sport with fame and riches and they realized that their life is empty. A famous spy novelist, Jack Higgins, once asked a question of something he wished he had known as a small boy. And he said, I wish I'd known this. When you get to the top, there's nothing there. We tend to forget that as we live in this world. We can easily get caught up pursuing the riches in this world, all the while forgetting that it isn't what saves us. It isn't what keeps us. And the rich young ruler was the same. Instead, James wants to warn us of this impending doom for those that believe that their riches will last, that their riches will sustain them all through this life and into the next. He says, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. James does this a lot in his book, this beautiful imagery that, that he uses here. And this can be understood in any culture and in any country in the world. What happened to your lawn this, this summer if you didn't water it? It was brown. In-laws come in from Michigan and we were driving around. He's like, what's wrong with all the lawns here? This is Washington summer. You know, unless you're watering it, the sun and its scorching heat turned it brown in no time. Those with great wealth tend to think of their wealth as something that is eternal. And God says, nope. It makes me cringe a little when I see people place their hope and their dreams in things that pass away. Whether that's a home or a car or a career or a spouse or a public image, James says they'll all fade. And it doesn't mean that you can't have a nice home. It's not sinful to have a nice home or a nice car or a good career. It just means you can't place your worth or your security in those things. There are plenty of people that God has blessed with wealth. And the goal isn't to dedicate our lives to just acquire more money and things or beauty or the perfect spouse. There have been many that have been given their life over to this pursuit. They ruined their marriages. They ruined their health and their children, their friendships. Why? Because they, they needed to pursue this, thinking that their worth was in the pursuit of more. And in the end, they'll die and leave their wealth behind. Did you know that 10 out of 10 people die? I saw that stat this week. It's astounding. We all leave it. That's why money, no matter how much we have, is a bad investment. It can ruin our lives right now, too. Wealth can make us believe that when we have enough, we can finally feel secure and significant. But money can also make us feel like we know everything. But the, the fact is even there that rich men who, when stripped of their wealth, are often considered fools. Now hear me, I'm not saying that having money or even being wealthy is sinful. It's not. That isn't what God's word says. Money isn't the root of all evil. Right? What does the scripture say? It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Don't let anyone say different. It's the, the pursuit of that. The, I have to have this to be secure, to be who I am. I have, that's what's evil. And there's a reminder for us this morning in James that our hope is not in the, in the money and possessions that we have, but in Christ. James says, 
For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And so I ask, what are you pursuing? Coming back to that question, what's important? You know, when you're young, you think the whole world's in front of you and you could do anything. You're strong, lots of energy and good looks. Not long ago, I was sifting through some pictures on my phone and came across the picture of my wedding day. And my daughter Charlotte was there, five-year-old, looked at it, looked back at me and said, Dad, you look much younger in this picture. Now you have lots of white gray hair. Yep, I do. We all fade. Our good looks fade. We can try hard to stop the toll that time takes on us and our bodies, but it always comes. I constantly try to tell younger people looking for love, looking for that spouse, for that one, and they tell me attraction, I need to be attracted, that's the most important thing. And I think, yes, attraction is necessary, but it's not the most important thing because it will fade. It, it, it always does. So you're not gonna hear that advice from me. Don't hitch your heart to something that fades. Hitch your heart to something that's eternal. You're looking for love for that special someone. Find someone that loves Jesus. That's eternal. Who finds their worth in him. Because that will outlast all the good looks that you see. And friends, you need nothing more than the surrounding creation as evidence, the, the withering and brown grass and fading of the flower to understand that the poor investment it is to let those things rise to a level of a heart-controlling importance in your life. You want an example? I mean, parents, on the way out, stop by the Pletcher's table, grab some flowers, and see if you can keep those alive for the next 20 years. Right there in front of you. It will wither. And the pursuit of those things in life above the pursuit of God is what James is trying to communicate to us. And, and when we do this, the, the temporary begins to replace the eternal. The physical begins to replace the spiritual. And for us as believers who have been given this incredible gift of grace, we begin to lose our sense of what's truly important. And we lose our sense of what is important. We, we lose the exaltation of knowing that we have been lifted to a position that we could never earn on our own. And we can begin to, to lose the knowledge that all of our good efforts are nothing in the eyes of God. We're not saved by how good-looking we are or how, how well we do in school or in our job. We're saved because of Christ and his grace in our lives. And in God's economy, the, the poor are rich and the rich are poor. Everything's upside down. Well, our last point is the eternal, eternally rich, verse 12. James ends the section that we've looked at with a promise. He says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James calls us as Christians blessed or, or happy beyond measure because we have been tested. And he's pointing back again to verse 3. It's the same word there, testing. 
meaning approved, tried, and true. It's, it's meaning our, our faith is now genuine. Our faith has been made genuine through the testing, through the trials, and through the suffering that we experience. And James says we will receive a crown of life. And the crown spoken of here was a head wreath or a garland that was given to a victor as prize in the Greek Olympic Games. But here it's a, a living crown in contrast to a fading crown. It is the, the crown of life, the crown that consists of eternal life that is contrasted with the fading way of earthly prosperity and, and fame. Some commenting on this suggest that James is not, not only referring to a, a future crown when we get to heaven, but also to the crown of a rich and full life to be enjoyed here on earth now as believers. As God burns off the dross of our unbelief, we receive the promises of God's faithfulness to us to endure trials. And that's the kind of proof of a life of a believer. William Barclay wrote about this. He said, the Christian has a joy that no other man can have. The Christian has a royalty that no other man uh, have never realized. For however humble his earthly circumstances, he is nothing less than the child of God. The Christian has a victory which others cannot win, for he meets life and all its demands in the conquering power of the presence and company of Jesus Christ. We have something the world doesn't have. Let me close here. Some of you might be familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata uh, and her story. Uh, her story this week as I was preparing, she was a, a Christian, she is a Christian, and was injured young in life, unable to, to move. Um, and she would written a number of books. She still has, she still does a number of ministry opportunities. And, and she talks in one book about a, one of her roommates when she was in the hospital, roommate Denise. And, and after uh, Johnny had an accident, she was there in this facility with Denise. Denise Walters was a teenage cheerleader about the same age as Johnny in, when she was injured. Denise was a senior in high school, popular and happy. Her whole life was in front of her and it looked impressive. But one day she stumbled on the stairs between classes and fell down. She didn't understand why, but it seemed that her feet in front of her didn't work. By the end of the day, her legs were numb, so she couldn't hardly walk. So she went home and took a nap, and when she got up, she was paralyzed from the waist down. Within hours, her arms were unable to move. Within two weeks, it said that she was blind. And what was happening was this very rare, super accelerated case of multiple sclerosis. And so she enters the hospital, and she's also a Christian. And at first, everyone comes to see her, to visit. But as time goes on, it fades away. Less and less people come in. Her prognosis wasn't good. She wasn't able to move. She wasn't really improving. Her life was fading. After a while, no one would come in. No one was watching. Just her mother would come, day in and day out. She would sit there. She would read the Bible to Denise, and Denise would nod in agreement. She could talk, but it wasn't easy, and she would talk with Johnny, and she knew Johnny was also a Christian. And Denise never complained. She always trusted. She would say, I know God has some reason for this. So she kept her heart on him, kept in faith. After a couple of years, though, she finally faded away completely, and she died. And Johnny, after, after a while, used to say that she struggled for years to understand all of this. She, she said, what good could have come out of that? Because absolutely, even if she had been this great model of faith, she says, nobody was watching. 
And then one day, Johnny was sitting around with some Christian friends, and they're trying to brainstorm what in the world was going on with this situation. And they realized a number of things. In Luke 15, 10, Jesus says, I tell you, the host of heaven rejoiced in the presence of God over one sinner who repents. Ephesians 3.10, the power and principalities, the spirit world have eyes on the church. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden for all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And as they, they talked, she came to realize something. She came to realize that what you find important in your life what you live for, whether you're faithful or unfaithful, she came to realize that everyone's watching. The powers, the principalities, the spirit world, the angels, the demons, God, everyone's watching. And this is how, as Christians, we should view our world. God is always watching. There are more than God that are even watching, that can see what's happening to us. We're always on TV, friends. But not just your outward actions, not just what you say. You know, God knows your heart. He knows what you're thinking. What if tomorrow, everything you did and everything you said and even somehow everything you thought was being beamed around the world on satellites? Billions of people were to watch. Would it make a difference in how you lived? Would it make everything you did in life significant? Would you think about that? See, what we do in this life will last forever. And for Christians here this morning, how we live through these trials and sufferings will produce for us a crown that will never fade, he says. Crown of life. And we need to understand, someone's watching. The things you do for God and for his glory are the things that really last. And we need to realize, friends, we need to remind ourselves again this morning, the greatest thing about troubles and trials that come into our lives is that we get more of Jesus. And we become more like him. And we need to count it all joy, friends, when you face Trials of various kinds. Because it's through these trials and these troubles that God is building something in your life. Something that will last, something that's eternal, that's weighty. He is building in you a faith that cannot be destroyed by this world. He is building in us confidence that there is truly more to this life than what we can see. See, the Bible says that the grass is here today and gone tomorrow. The hills and the mountains that seem to be here for thousands of years and seem to be here for millions more will be gone. They're going to fade away. But the steadfast love of our God is from everlasting to everlasting. And friends, the mountains that you see are nothing compared to your life. You are more real than the mountains. God didn't send his son to die for mountains. He sent his son to die for you. And so we can't find our fulfillment in things in this world. 
We can only find our joy and fulfillment in him. We cannot find our purpose or worth in the world's evaluation of how little we have or how much we have. We only find it in Jesus Christ. And whether you're poor or rich, we all come to God the same way as a cripple. We need God. Your poverty doesn't gain you access to God any more than your riches do. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Both come to God the same way through Jesus Christ. And it's marvelous, astounding that Jesus would save any of us. And I want to sing about that. So let me pray, and we're going to stand and sing together as the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the reminder again in your word that you are the one that gives us what we need. You are the one that saves us. And we recognize again that we all come to you the same way. Wretched, crippled, unable to save ourselves. And we've all sinned. I mean, the only thing we've, we've brought in, God, to our salvation is our sin. You've done everything else. And we rejoice as Christians this morning that you've not only saved us, but you've exalted us in Christ and that you keep us. And how marvelous is God that you would save us. How incredible it is. May we be reminded of that this morning as we sing together as the church. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.